Good morning, church. I have been, um, thank you. I've been hiding something from you. Um, uh, my wife, uh, I, she probably knows, but um, she's never said anything. Um, my children, I, they have no idea, um, just from the way that they interact with me. In the interview process to be here, they didn't ask any questions, so I didn't say anything. But, um, but I just wanted to share something with you this morning. Some of you may have suspected. Um, I've been here a little while now. Uh, but as I said, my children have no idea just from the way they interact with me. I, I can tell they don't know. I mean, in, in the multicultural and um, politically correct times we live in, I think we've been waiting for a black Superman and, um, <laughs> and, and not even an African-American black Superman, a curry-munching curry Superman. So I'm pretty excited to represent. <laughs> in the superhero origin movies, if you've ever watched, you know, how did the superhero become the superhero? I was inspired by Andrew a couple of weeks ago sharing about superheroes. I just uh, felt needed to share with you now. But in the superhero origin stories, um, it, it's always about identity. Uh, it, as the superhero is discovering who they are, how they fit, um, how it is they're going to reveal themselves to the world. It's about identity. Who am I? Why am I like this? What am I here to do? And, and always in the story and movies as well about superheroes, their powers are a distant second to the central issue of identity. I mean, every superhero movie, okay, you, 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 they've got their superpowers, their super abilities or whatever it is, but it's always secondary to the issue of identity. Who am I? What sacrifice will I have to make? And the world has much to say about identity as well, doesn't it? I mean, we have cliche phrases like being you know, a self-made man, a self-made woman. We talk about having an identity crisis. When, when something devastating happens, uh, we're lost. We're, we're, who am I? What am I doing? Who have I been all this time? Uh, we talk about reinventing ourselves uh, as well. Again, something um, devastating may have happened. We may have a geographical relocation. It's an opportunity to reinvent ourselves. We're encouraged to look within ourselves, to be ourselves, to be individuals. Now, and all of this is to help us. It's all to help us to live with purpose, meaning and worth. Now, I have a slight tone of sarcasm. I don't mean to. It's, it's, it's there a little bit because there's some truth to these issues because I think they're, they're what's the word we use? Existential questions, questions that talk about our existence. Why am I here? And this is something that's operating in us where we're seeking to understand our purpose, our meaning, where we fit. But my issue or my problem lies in where we turn where we turn to understand our identity. I think the biblical story, from start to finish, I think our experience of life itself says that when we turn away from God to discover our purpose, our meaning, our worth, we find very quickly areas of our lives 
and the, the very sense of our identity become ruins. Like a wall broken down, we no longer have a sense of ourselves disconnected from the creator who created us. When we come to the book of Nehemiah, we are reminded of a broken people whose sense of self resembled its city walls which lay in ruins. When we come to the first chapter of Nehemiah, we have to think back 140 years earlier to this time, Jerusalem and its people were crushed by the Babylonian Empire. God's people had turned their hearts away from him with idolatry and injustice resulting. God's people were destroying themselves long before the Babylonians came knocking on the door. They had no sense of themselves. Their lives were in ruin. Brokenness, injustice was all around. And now God's people had been living in exile, conquered, disillusioned, and living in disgrace. But their God, our God, because of his steadfast love, looks to build up his people and restore their sense of identity. Our first song that we sung was Reckless Love. We have a God whose love does pursue us. There isn't a single person here that doesn't awake to the need of God reminding us of who we are. Because we are so forgetful and complacent. A church who lives in the reality of who God has called us to be, now that's a superpower. A church who lives in the reality of God, who who is... uh, The reality of who God has called us to be, that's a superpower. However, God often responds, that is, God's looking to speak into us, to give us back our sense of identity, to build us up again. God is always wanting to do this, but he often responds to our readiness forgot to, no I didn't forget to, I had it and I deleted it, but I'm going to mention now Isaiah 30 verse 18. Um, Sorry, back. Um, Isaiah 30 verse 18 begins with, God waits to be gracious to us. God longs to be gracious to us. And sometimes there's this sense of waiting, watching, waiting for our readiness. I think Nehemiah is a man who shows his readiness to be built up as one of God's people. Many love the book of Nehemiah because he's a man of action. From chapter 2 onwards, it's just boom, boom, boom. When he discerns that it's his role to lead God's people in the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall, it's not going to be mission impossible, but mission accomplished. Sorry if that's, I didn't give you a spoiler alert. He will accomplish what he sets out to do. But I want to look at chapter 1 that shows us the foundation of such a man. Let's look at how Nehemiah shows his readiness to be built up as a servant of God. 
Firstly, I think Nehemiah, we see in him, well, there are many things we can see and many things I could draw out. I want to draw out three. Nehemiah's compassionate confession. And because I'm trying to keep it at three, this is really two. I've just jammed them together. Compassionate confession. So Nehemiah is an exile born in the Persian Empire. Why the Persian Empire? Because the Persians are now the dominant power. They have defeated the Babylonians. And under the Persian kings, God's people are allowed to start returning back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem, first under Cyrus. Zerubbabel leads the first set of exiles, and Zerubbabel is a descendant of King David. He builds the temple up. Ezra follows a few decades later. Now, Zerubbabel was 90 years before Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem. Ezra just 13 years before. And Ezra gathers the people again around worship of the one true God. But you hear Nehemiah's compassion in um, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. His brother has come along with some other Jews and Nehemiah is concerned and he inquires after Jerusalem and the exiles that have returned. He wants to know what's going on. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah expresses compassion. He shows a love for the people of God. The antithesis or the opposite of of this love sometimes uh, we see it in communities, whether it be in churches, whether it be in our families, whether it be in our workplaces, in our schools. However it is you conceive of community, because we are a part of many different communities. Sometimes the opposite of this is what you might see as a critical spirit. But what Nehemiah has here is a compassion and a deep love for God's people. And both don't coexist. He has a love and a compassion that sees him weep. In chapter 1, verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He confesses his sins. Now remember, Nehemiah is some 140 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. He's confessing his sins as though his sins have somehow contributed to the exile. He's confessing his sins, the sins of his family and the sins of Israel. And he's doing it both personally and corporately. In our individualistic world, we find it hard to think in terms of understanding ourselves as part of a community. So much so that you can confess the sins as though they are your very own. And there is a sense in which even when the sins per se, we talk about, you know, we can start listing sins, they all spring from the reality of sin. And sin is a turning away from God. 
And in that sense, there's no point talking about who's got more mud on them. In that sense, we are all guilty. In that sense, we are all complicit. And in our communities, there is brokenness. In our communities, there is injury and hurt. In our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our small groups, in our churches, in our, among our neighbourhoods. But the idea of identifying ourselves so much that we could confess sins and not be standing apart and saying, God, forgive them, but standing there as one with. I was born in Sri Lanka. I was eight months old when my family migrated here. I'm an Australian, I'm proud to say. But as an Australian, I share in some sad parts of our history. I share in the reality that there were atrocities that were done to the first peoples of this nation. Not only do I think we need to say sorry, we need to think very hard about what it means for true reconciliation to take place. That's part of my history. I'm part of this country, this nation. I am guilty of that. I'm part of that. That's part of my history. We think of... um, Identity, uh, in, in some cultures, we think of it as, you know, when a child leaves the home and then does some travelling and they're independent and they come to understand who they are. There are some cultures that don't try to understand identity apart from community. Actually, their identity is so wrapped up in community, in being part of a people. And so Nehemiah, he confesses his sins both personally and corporately, on behalf of the people. And God is watching for a people who show a readiness. A readiness to be built up, because God longs to build us up. (coughs) Nehemiah's waiting and listening. Um, In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the month of Kislev in the 20th year. If we go to chapter 2, thank you, Andrew, for the puppet show. Um, So chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah has discerned his call and he's coming before the king. And so what sort of time has elapsed? We see in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. What we're talking about is the space of four to five months. So in the space of four to five months... Nehemiah says, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He's a man of action, but for four to five months, there was a time of waiting and listening. In in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Nehemiah waited and listened, time, fasted. I've dabbled in fasting. I haven't practiced it as much as I would have liked. I do have stomach issues at times which interfere. But I've uh, started trying to practice fasting in just different ways. And this past Lent, I I fasted TV or movies particularly. And um, the great thing about taking up a discipline sometimes is that it may stick afterwards. And so from time to time, I just think, yeah, this week I'm not going to watch a movie. I'm not going to... But the discipline is not for the discipline 
so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say we've done something, but rather it, it's a detaching from the things in our lives that may be a cause of sin, that may be causing ruin in our lives, stopping us from being focused and reminded of our call. It's detaching ourselves from those things to create space and time, and space and time in our hearts even, for God to speak, for us to listen, to discern. That we don't want to move apart from God. Nehemiah took time to discern God's will. He waited upon the Lord till he discerned what God wanted him to do. And finally, Nehemiah's personal commitment. This prayer that Nehemiah prayed, um, uh, I, I don't think it was... I think he'd been praying. I think it's a summarization of his prayers over some months. So much so that when you come to the last verse, he's now discerned what God has been saying over this time. And so you catch this request in the last verse. So he has this high and, um, I don't say lofty in an in a irreverent way, it's a high and grand prayer to the God of heaven. And then right at the end, there's this little request he tacks on. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. We know this man is the king to which Nehemiah is the cupbearer to. I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was willing to be part of the answer to his own prayer. He was willing to personally commit himself let me help you understand this. So the cupbearer is not just the guy that holds the cup for the king or passes him the drink. Uh, it would have even in those times be checking for poison. But more than that, uh, Nehemiah would have been the type of person to have his ear to the ground, listening out for conspiracies in the palace, in the court. Uh, Nehemiah would have been a confidant of the king, someone whom the king would have confided in. There would have been a close relationship a great deal of trust. Nehemiah has grown up in Persia. He has a good position. He's putting all of that at risk, maybe his very life. Because as we saw from the puppet show, he came before the king with a downcast face, sadness. Um, Now, I don't know, maybe we head off to work and we think it's okay to be grumpy um, and to show all of that and let it all out. But it, his, this is the cupbearer to the king. The king says he's never seen that before because you don't do that sort of thing. There's great risk in what he's doing, this plan that he's venturing on. He's going to let the king see his grief, his love for his people. His people are in disgrace. A great loss and sense of identity and he shares this burden for his people and he's grieved by this. So he puts a lot at stake in the communities you're in, in your families, 
in your workplaces, in your schools, among your friends, among your church, among your small groups? Are you one with the people? Such a love? Will you wait and listen? Are you willing? Are you willing to make a personal commitment? Because God's looking for that kind of readiness. He longs to pour out his grace upon us. He longs to build up his people. Are we willing to let God show us those places where he wants to work on? If there are any among us this morning who don't know God, I would want to say, God, your creator, wants to reveal to you who you are who you really are. And only your creator can tell you that. And to those of us who believe, God wants to remind us of our great position and our great calling. A church who lives in the reality of who God has called it to be, now that would be an awesome superpower in the building and transforming of communities. A church who lives in the reality of who God has called it to be. And through Jesus, our calling is even more glorious than those of the people in Nehemiah's day. Let me finish with 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I think it was used in preparation for communion last week. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen.